Amen. Let's open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. Some of the traits that we have, we inherit genetically, perhaps much to our chagrin. I always joke that my dad has a rather sizable nose. My mom has a modest-sized nose. My dad has perfectly straight teeth. My mom had crooked teeth that had to be fixed with braces. I was born, of course, with a big nose and crooked teeth. There's some things that, much to our chagrin, we just inherit from our parents. They're genetic. When it comes to the question of nature and nurture, there's some things that are just part of our nurture, our nature, that are just given to us from birth. There are other things that we come to emulate over time that are part of our, 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 our nurture, things that we pick up from our parents. I think most of us probably in this room, especially if you're old enough, have had that moment in your life. You all know what I'm talking about, where you say something or you do something and you think to yourself, that's exactly what my parents used to do. That's exactly what my dad used to say. That's the same thing my father used to say. My dad had this saying every time he would leave the house for work. I mean, invariably, every time. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a billion times. Somebody's got to go to work so that we can afford this life you've grown accustomed to. (laughs) And I heard myself the other day as I get prepared to leave for work. Why do you have to go to work, Daddy? Because someone has to work to afford this life you've grown accustomed to. And I thought at that moment, I've become my father. I am exactly like him. We emulate the one that raised us. That's the point. We emulate, whether we like it or not, we emulate the one that raised us. Well, this morning we're in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35, and we're going to see here what Matthew says about following Jesus and emulating Christ. So let's look at Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." Since the beginning of the year, we've been looking at Matthew's retelling of the miracles in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And last week, we dealt with the very last of the miracles where Jesus heals a mute man. And the entire time we've been in chapters 8 and 9, I reminded you, if you were here, that of the, the structure that Matthew uses in this section. And, and just to rehearse this, or maybe rehash this, Um, since we've got just a little bit of time, we've got three miracles at the beginning of chapter 8. Chapter 8 opens with three straight miracles, and then it's followed by a break where we deal with some other things. And then he goes on to tell us about three more miracles of Jesus, followed by yet another break, and then three more miracles. Now, I've said over the last few weeks that this is very clearly, intentionally designed and laid out 
by Matthew, where each miracle serves to make the point to us that Jesus has authority over the kingdom of God, and that as he brings it into the world, it actually has a real-world impact on people's lives. People are healed. Demons are cast out. The dead are raised. Lepers are cured of their leprosy. He has the authority over the kingdom, and it actually has a real-world impact. But as the uh, TV salespeople say, but wait, there's more. There is. I've talked quite a bit about the miracles in, chapter, in chapters 8 and 9 and how they're proving Jesus' authority, but what we haven't spent much time on are the breaks that happen in between those miracles. The, there are two breaks between the, set, the three sets of miracles that I want us to see the commonality in this morning. I want us to look at those breaks because they help us to understand the passage that we're actually in this morning. If you'll look back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, verse 18, that starts the first break. Three miracles have already happened, and in 8.18 starts the first little break of the miracle chain that we get. And it begins with what it means to be a disciple. Jesus is telling him what it means to be a disciple. You see, a scribe will come up to Jesus. He's an expert in the law, and he comes up to Jesus, and he tells him right there, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. I'll follow you wherever you go. Wherever you go, I'll go. But Jesus tells him what? He says, well, you understand that being my disciple means that we're going to go to some uncomfortable places. The places that we'll go often will leave us without a home and without a pillow to lay our head on. That's what he says right there to that disciple, isn't it? That you have to understand that sometimes it's a little bit more complicated than that. That it's a lifestyle of difficulty. But then Jesus issues a command to the next disciple. There's two people in this little break that he has conversations with. And so he issues a command to the next disciple who tells him, look, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I've got lots of things to take care of. I need to bury my father, which seems like a reasonable ask from Jesus. But what does Jesus say to him? He says, one command, follow me. Follow me is the command that he gives to him. And then he clarifies yet again what it means to be his disciple. We get more understanding. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, don't be concerned with the affairs of those who are perishing. Leave them to, to bury their own dead. There's greater work to be done. Just follow me. And so in this section, we get two clarifying remarks about what it means to follow Jesus, and we get one command, follow me. All right, now jump forward to chapter 9, verse 9. This is the second break that we get in this chain of miracles. So now a total of six miracles have happened. The second three have taken place, and we, we get this little break in the action where there's a little bit of a narrative section. So Jesus comes in, and he issues a command, this time to Matthew. And what is the command? Follow me. All right, And then we have a question posed to Jesus by the Pharisees. Why does your, or it's actually posed to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the sinners and the tax collectors? 
That's crazy talk. Why does, he, why does he do that? And Jesus interrupts and he says, because it's the sick that need a physician. In other words, if you're going to, to be following me, then you need to be going about doing the work that I do and going to the sinners and tax collectors. This is what he actually tells the Pharisees. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to do, be a disciple of mine, this is what you're to be doing. And then we get in verse 14 another question that's posed to Jesus. This time by John's disciples. They say, why don't your disciples fast? Why don't they carry on the traditions of the Pharisees? Why don't they fast? And the basic gist of Jesus' response to them is, well, because they're celebrating the inauguration of an entirely new kingdom that I am bringing. And as of this moment, I'm with them. They don't need to fast. They need to celebrate. So if we look at the connection between these two breaks in the action, between the sets of miracles, we have one command in each, follow me. And then we also in both get two clarifying remarks on what it means to be Jesus' disciple. In other words, he goes where there are people that are in need of salvation. He brings much needed aid to the kingdom of the kingdom into people's lives. He brings it to them. Now the work isn't always pretty. A lot of times it leaves him without a home. A lot of times it left his disciples beaten and scourged for their work. So it's not always pretty, but the kingdom that's brought to people's lives results in rejoicing instead of suffering. That's the summation of those two posits. But now as chapter 9 comes to a close... And next week we'll begin chapter 10. What do we see Jesus doing in this section that we're in? Except doing and going about doing exactly what we've already seen. And then in chapter 10, he's actually going to tell his disciples to go out and do the exact same thing that he is doing. We're going to see a little bit of that this morning. So our passage this morning is really telling us yet again what it means to follow him. This will make a third time in chapter 8 and 9 that we get clarity on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so if you're keeping score at home, Matthew has interwoven three trilogies of miracles that showcase Jesus' authority over the kingdom, and then one trilogy in, in, intermixed within those that display what it means to follow Him in bringing this kingdom to others. So this morning I want to just make a couple of observations on what this passage is saying is involved in following Jesus. The first is just a statement of truth. The second is what it means to us. The first, the world will only change with the good news of the kingdom of God. The world will only change with the good news of the kingdom of God. Look at verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, if at the end of two chapters of Jesus saying, follow me, you're left asking, well, what does it mean exactly to follow Jesus and where does he expect me to go? Then you're not alone. 
I think Matthew actually expects us to ask this question after we've got done reading chapters 8 and 9. You have follow me in chapter 8, follow me in chapter 9, and then at the end of chapter 9, and Jesus went. Follow me, follow me. Well, where are you going? Jesus went. This is what we're to be looking at. So where did Jesus go and what did he do? Because answering that question tells us precisely how to follow him and where we're to go. Well, it says he went throughout the cities and the villages and he went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, you might be thinking, is Matthew really expecting us? Is Jesus really expecting us that in following Jesus, we're to draw the conclusion after chapter 8 and 9 that I'm supposed to follow Jesus in exactly this way, exactly what it says here? Is Jesus expecting me to follow him, to go about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom where I live? Yes, I think so. And the reason I think that is because of chapter 10, verse 1. Look with me there. It's just a couple of verses from where we're at this morning. It says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and, what does it say, to heal every disease and every affliction. So Jesus commissions the disciples in the next chapter, and when he does, Matthew uses the exact same phrase that he has used to describe Jesus' action to heal every disease and every affliction. But then look down just a few verses later in chapter 10, verse 7. The disciples are to go about doing what? Well, they proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which we've already know, we already know is what Jesus was teaching. So the answer is clearly yes. They are to do exactly what Jesus was doing. The disciples are told in no uncertain terms that they have to be going to do exactly what Jesus is doing. And it's evident that the intent of what we've been reading is to clarify how the disciples are to go about following Jesus and what it means to actually follow Him. So if this is going to tell us how to follow Jesus, then let's look closely at what Jesus is doing. First, Jesus is teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And we know this from the beginning of the outset of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if you haven't been with us through our study of Matthew, you might not get what's being said here, the gospel of the kingdom. So what does it mean, this gospel of the kingdom? I've heard the term the gospel before, but what does it mean, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom? Well, we often use different terms to describe salvation. We might say something like someone is saved. We might say someone has believed on Jesus. We might say someone has professed faith in Christ. We might say someone is born again. Well, the Bible uses many of these terms, if not all of these terms, to describe someone having salvation. But the, the, the Bible also uses a term that we rarely ever use, or it's a concept of salvation. And, and, and it is the, the transfer of citizenship from one place to another. Now, citizenship is a very familiar concept for us. We understand what it means to be a citizen of a place. But stretching all the way back, as far back as ancient Greece, the concept of citizenship began to be formulated. And in the Roman Empire, it was prominent. 
You'll remember that as Paul is being beaten by the Roman soldiers, he appeals to his Roman citizenship to be, to be tried. So citizenship becomes, this, becomes a great way of communicating what's happening when you come under the lordship of Christ. You're transferring your citizenship from one place to another, from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus uses that, and Paul uses it, and the Bible uses it, to communicate what he is here to do. He's to give you citizenship in the new kingdom. So he's proclaiming the good news of an entirely new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And you're coming under his rule and his reign. As kingdom of heaven, we see in Jesus in the Gospels, is beginning to establish its territory on earth. And so first we know that it's going to be a spiritual reign. It's going to be in the hearts of men and women. As it continues to invade their hearts, what do we see them doing? Submitting to Jesus' authority with their lives. Obeying Him above all else. And then, in a time that's still to come, even to us, in a time that's still to come, it will be a physical reign. But if it's, if it's first a spiritual reign, are the people that He's proclaiming the kingdom to just supposed to take His word for it? When He comes and says, hey, a new kingdom is here and I'm bringing it. Are they just supposed to say, okay, I'll buy in? I mean, what if He's a snake oil salesman? And he's just packaging a, a set of goods. Are people just supposed to buy it? No. There are signs that he is given, that he is giving to them, that, that the kingdom that he is bringing is real. And these signs also demonstrate what, what kind of kingdom it is that he's bringing and what real power it actually has. And what are the signs? He says he heals every disease and every affliction. Notice that Matthew doesn't say all kinds of diseases and afflictions. He says every disease and every affliction, meaning that the kingdom that he's preaching about, that he is coming to bring, when it comes in fullness, will fully eradicate all forms of disease and affliction. Now, of course, these are signs that testify to what Jesus is preaching. Unlike the prosperity gospel preachers like Creflo Dollar, like T.D. Jakes, like many others, who teach that if you belong to God's kingdom, then you'll always experience those signs in the here and now. That's why they call it the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel. Because they reason, well, if you're in God's kingdom, if what Christ has done is He's come and eradicated all disease and all forms of affliction, well then, if, if you have some form of affliction or disease or poverty or anything other than wealth, health, and prosperity, well, then you must not be a part of His kingdom. You must lack faith. Of course, that's not what we believe. That's a huckster gospel. If everyone who was a citizen of God's kingdom was always healed, then there would be nothing to come. Amen. There would be no expectation. There would be nothing to anticipate. Oh, of course, God's kingdom has not come fully, but these are signs and miracles 
And those signs and miracles here and throughout the Bible, anytime you see them, and even in today's society, if you would see them happen, which they do happen from time to time, even today, they're merely a foretaste of what's to come. They're merely to show us, give us a glimpse as to what His kingdom is really like. If you look at verse 36, we get a glimpse through the eyes of the king of this kingdom as he looks at people that are still citizens of the present world. That are still under the authority of the present world. And what, is it, what does it say they are? How does he look at them? It says they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word for harassed can mean helpless, but it can also mean weary and dejected. That's the idea that, that Matthew's communicating there. They're weary and dejected. So Jesus looks at the people that are following him, and, the, and, and what he sees are a people that are weary from having no leader to lead them, from having no one to come and save them. This image of a shepherdless sheep and people that are harassed comes from Ezekiel 34, 1-16. You can write that down, Ezekiel 34, 1-16. You can read it later. We're only going to read part of it this morning. But Ezekiel 34, 1-16. In, in, in that passage, God is condemning the leaders of Israel for devouring the sheep and leading them astray and seeking their own gain and their own wealth and their own power. And so as a result, God's sheep are wandering around aimlessly. And so they become prey to the wild beasts. Now what did we see in Matthew except that the, the people who are wandering aimlessly are being attacked by demonic powers and by being attacked by all kinds of illnesses and things like that. But they're being attacked by wild beasts. And so God says through the prophet Ezekiel, starting in verse 11, you can see it on the screen uh, behind me. He says, Behold, I, my, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country, I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. And I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So you see what Jesus is doing by preaching the gospel of the new kingdom and by healing people. He's feeding them, and he's freeing them from harassment and helplessness because the solution to the problem of that the people are facing is the kingdom of God. That's the solution. So here is Jesus, 
who is God in the flesh. And He's coming to shepherd His people and free them from oppression. And what is the solution to their woes? The good news of the kingdom of God, which promises healing from all disease and affliction when it comes in fullness. But as Jesus is going in amongst the people, and He's healing them of disease and affliction and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, He pauses there with His disciples. And he looks on the crowd of people that still have a lot of helplessness. That still have a lot of harassment. That are still wandering aimlessly like sheep without a shepherd. And they're looking to him for leadership. And what does it say? He has compassion on them. It would have been easy for Christ to have righteous indignation toward them. Perhaps Christ is the only one in history who could have righteous indignation towards anyone. It would have been easy for him to have righteous indignation toward them. Can't you get it? Don't you have it by now? Don't you understand? He is, after all, the perfect Son of God. But righteous indignation toward people who know they are in need of a physician is not in Jesus' heart. That's amazing to me. Righteous indignation toward people who know they are in need of help is not in Jesus' heart. We'll see this come to a crescendo at the end of this book where this very same Jesus that we're seeing now will go to the hill called Golgotha, the hill of the skull, where he'll die on the cross. Now, if you've ever had a question in your mind as to the compassion that Jesus has for people that are harassed and helpless, look no further than his cross. Where the Lamb of God gave his life so that those who are harassed and helpless, those who are weary with sin, could become citizens in a new kingdom. You may know what it's like to feel harassed and helpless. You may know that feeling all too well. You've been chased around by the same sins over and over. You continue to stumble day after day. Can't I get it right? Haven't I learned yet how to avoid stumbling? Perhaps you've even started to hear that familiar voice in your head. Well, now God's obviously tired of hearing from you. I mean, even His grace has limits. And by now, you finally crossed the boundary. This time, you've done it. Don't even bother Him anymore with this same sin. You've done it. I think it's helpful for all of us to see that the harassed and helpless people that come toward, to Jesus... It's not indignation that he feels toward them, but compassion. Now that's not to soft-pedal sin. Sin is an offense to God for sure. But that voice that you're hearing that tells you that God's done with you, that God has thrown out all the sinners, doesn't come from God. That's not what his voice sounds like. He has compassion for those that are harassed and helpless. And His answer is found in the cross 
of Jesus Christ. Now this tells us some things. First, it tells us that the gospel is the answer. The gospel is the answer. Because truth be told, every last one of us are harassed and helpless. Every last one of us feel that same kind of feeling over and over. Every last one of us are alive in a fallen world where sickness and death and frustration and anger and bitterness and lust and pride and gossip and slander all reign. And we endure an onslaught of temptation every single day. But we've been told that to get out of this helpless and harassing feeling, we need to turn to self-help. We just need to go to our local bookstore and look at the self-help section. Right there is all the help you need. That's what we've been told. In 2016, the self-help industry made $10 billion in profit. The self-help industry, $10 billion in profit. And we still have 40 million people suffering from anxiety, 14.8 million people suffering from depression, 7.7 million people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And in 2016 alone, the U.S. spent $446 billion on medications, which is almost half of the global market. We're richer than we've ever been. We have more earning potential than we've ever had. Our houses are bigger. Our phones are fancier. Our cars are nicer. And we are still unhappy. It might tell us that self-help doesn't work. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, verses 5 to 7, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to self-help. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's no secret that we live in a fallen world. Everyone knows it. Christian and atheist alike know it. Now, some may bury it deep down inside, but every single one of us knows that there's something wrong with death. We live in a world that is very obviously fine-tuned, and that it has to be created. But every one of us recognizes that there's something off about its tuning. There's something wrong here. See, God's solution wasn't self-help. Why? Because we're the problem. That's why. Because we're the problem. Our sin is precisely the problem and we can't run away from it. We can't turn to self-help gurus. 
We can't turn to life coaches, even though that's what we want our pastors to be sometimes. Even though that's what our pastors themselves sometimes want to make themselves into. You got Pastor Good Hair or Pastor White Teeth standing up at his cafe table, which is a horribly impractical pulpit. It's flat. You can't read the stuff on top of it without getting over it. But he's got the little cafe table standing next to him, wanting to make sure that you know he's relevant with his t-shirt and his affliction jeans, or his affliction shirt, and I don't even know what they are, jeans, skinny jeans, whatever. It's $1,500 sneakers. And all he's telling you in his sermon is that you just need to quit being so hard on yourself. That's your problem. Just believe in your own goodness. That's all you need. Then he gives you ten secrets to a better marriage. Here's the ten tips. Here's all you need. If you just had these tips, then you have a better marriage. Of course. The problem is that wasn't God's solution. That wasn't what God actually did to solve this problem. See, everyone is lost in sin. That's what Isaiah tells us. Every single one is lost. Everyone. We have all turned everyone to his own way. That's what's wrong with the world. And that sin is an offense to God. It's a rebellion against the one who made us in his image. But what did God do about it? Instead of punishing us, He punished His own Son on our behalf. God in flesh, the perfect Son, took our place. That was His solution. His solution was the Gospel. Jesus taking the wrath of God that you and I deserve. That's His solution. Bringing a new kingdom where we can be forgiven of sin. That's His solution. And the truth is that we all need, all the help we need is right there in the Gospel message. Every ounce of recovery, every ounce of help that we need is found right there in the gospel message. Because see, the gospel message tells us that self-help isn't going to work. Because we're the problem. And it's not just the person sitting next to you. It's not just your external circumstances. Those are fallen too. They certainly don't help. But if all of my problems went away, I would still be a problem. I've never been in a marriage counseling session where the person said to me, well, the problem with our marriage is me. The problem with our marriage is me. I I insist on my own way. I put all my hopes and dreams in my spouse. I want my spouse to fulfill me. No, virtually all counseling sessions are a lot of finger pointing. But that's not what Scripture says. It says, but everyone has sought his own way. And it's not until we come under the Lordship of Christ that we begin to identify the sin in our own life that has no part in His kingdom. That has has no ability to function here if I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. 
And we start to see all the ways that we seek to find our satisfaction in our spouse or our job or our schoolwork or our friendships or our status or our possessions. And what we start to see is that all of those things are fickle and they're finite and they're fleeting and they let us down. And then even when we get them, they don't end up being what we thought they were. They don't end up fulfilling us the way we thought they would. Those jobs, you know, that money sounded a lot, like a lot more until I actually got there and realized how fast it flows. Because the more I make, the more I spend. We begin to see that we're harassed and helpless. And then we need to turn to Christ and lay our sin on His table and own up to all those things. But when we begin to see that it's God's desire to weed out the sin in our own life, then we realize that our jobs as Christians is to not only identify the deeds of the flesh that are in our own life, but then to wake up every morning seeking to put those to death. To kill those deeds. Now, do you know what kind of effect it has on your marriage when both members of the marriage wake up in the morning with an earnest desire to put to death the deeds of their own flesh? To begin killing sin. To begin killing selfishness. To begin killing the conceit. To begin killing the pride, the dependence on others, the hope in others. Do you know what that does to your marriage? When the gospel is applied to you? Radical transformation. You become more concerned with the well-being of your spouse. Edification of your spouse. Helping your spouse be more like Jesus tomorrow than today. And they in turn help you because they both realize what kind of fight we're in. What the nature of the battle we're dealing with really is. Truth is we're all harassed and helpless. And we'll only be set free by citizenship in the kingdom of God. Because it identifies our sin, our real problem, and it gives us the remedy for it. Now, lastly, second point, we must then show compassion for others by setting them free with the gospel of the kingdom. We must then show compassion for others by setting them free with the gospel of the kingdom. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now Jesus is moved to compassion, and so he charges his disciples with going to these people and there to pray for more workers to do it. So they're both to pray, and they are also to be the workers. So they're to pray for the workers and they're to be the workers. So really, in some ways, they're an answer to their own problem. They're an answer to their own prayer. 
The harvest that he's talking about here is setting people free with the kingdom of God, that they may have eternal life and that they may have freedom from sin and citizenship in the new kingdom. And so Jesus says here about four things that I think are worth noting. Let's take a look at them. Uh, Four things here. The first is there's a lot of work to do. He says the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of work to do. There are many people in and around us that can relate to the feeling of harassment and helplessness. There are many people in your life that upon hearing the good news of the kingdom will respond in faith and have freedom for the first time. Do you realize that? That as that co-worker is explaining to you his problems, there is a solution. Brother, Christ died and rose again on the third day to give us freedom from sin and eternal life. Freedom from this harassing and helpless feeling that you feel. That's it. That's the gospel. Ten seconds. That's it. And there are many people that want to hear that, that need to hear that, that are in your life at this very moment. Don't deny them a chance to hear it. The harvest is plentiful. Second thing that he says, there are a few people that want to do it. There are a few people that want to do it. He says, but the laborers are few. This goes back to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember where Jesus tells them that the pathway is narrow that leads to life and few find it. Globally speaking, in the history of the world, very few people are in this place as citizens of God's kingdom and earnestly desire to share it. The Christian who is a follower of Christ desires to share his faith with his neighbor. That is a Christian. He may not know how to, and he may struggle with it. But if you tell me, well, I'm a Christian, but I have no desire to share my faith, I don't know what you mean. Because I don't think that's true. Christians have a desire to share their faith with their neighbors. Again, we may struggle with it. It may be difficult for us. But we have a desire. And these people, though few in number, desire to labor in sharing the gospel. The third thing he says, Therefore, we should pray for more people to do it. We should pray for more people to do it. He says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord to send out laborers. We should pray for more people to do it. In other words, prayer should undergird our going, and specifically, prayer that people would hear and believe. Now, this also is going to include the prayer that people would be raised up within our very own congregation. People that would be church planters, people that would be missionaries, people that would be pastors, people that would be teachers, people that would right here in our very own congregation simply just be faithful with what God has given to them as they encounter co-workers. That He would make us faithful witnesses. Maybe you're thinking of people that you know that you know need to hear the good news of the kingdom. that You wish would come to faith. And maybe you really don't know how to go about sharing. Maybe you, you, you're nervous about it. Jesus tells us to begin with prayer. Begin with prayer. 
Pray that God would raise you up at an opportune moment to say the right words that need to be said to the person. Pray that they would be sensitive to His calling, that He would break their heart of stone, that they might see their sin and turn from it and repent and follow Him. Begin with prayer. The fourth thing he says, it's God's harvest. It's God's harvest. Look, he says, to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. See, no one is more interested and invested in saving souls from death and hell than God himself. No one. Not one person is more invested in saving souls from hell than God himself. This is his harvest. It's His people that are being saved. We can't forget that. that We're not trying to win people over to our side. I'm not trying to beat you into submission. I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm not trying to come up with all the answers. I'm just a herald of the good news of the kingdom. That's all I am. I'm just someone who's telling you the truth. We're simply heralds of the kingdom that Christ has established with His own blood and God's harvest will come in because it's His harvest. He's more invested in bringing them to salvation than you are. Proclaim the gospel and trust Him to save. You don't have to convince someone that Christ reigns in God's kingdom because here's the truth, that on Sunday, following the Jewish Passover, some 2,000 years ago, this Jesus, who was crushed for our iniquities, who died on the cross of Calvary, rose from the dead. There's no greater sign that in Him is the new kingdom than Him overturning death. That's it. There's nothing greater than that. And he did it. The fact remains that he rose from the dead. Look, if he didn't, none of this matters. Might as well all go home. That's true. If his bones are in a grave somewhere and they're rotted away, we might as well all go home. It doesn't matter. But since he did... Everything changes. It means that He reigns as the King of this kingdom and His reign is not contingent on someone else's belief. He's not running for president. He doesn't need a majority vote. He doesn't even need electoral college. He's already won. He sits on the throne as King. We're simply heralding the good news. And we're trusting God to save. There's a couple things that I think this means for us. Many things I think this means for us. I'm going I'm to list out two. First is that buffet Christianity is not following Jesus. I think you probably know what I mean when I say buffet Christianity, but buffet Christianity is not following Jesus. What that is, is when you walk in to the church doors with your mouth open and all you want is for people to feed you. I want to be served. I want for people to be pouring into my life. I want people to be teaching me. I want everyone to serve me. That's not following Jesus. We have to realize that people are dying and going to hell every single day. What we also have to realize is that for many pastors around the world, they have less than a Sunday school education. 
Now, I'm not saying that's ideal for a pastor of a church in Africa to have less than a Sunday school education. But the reality is that they heard the gospel of the new kingdom, they followed it, and now they cannot keep quiet about it. Their only desire is to teach people and to share with people even what little they know. So no matter how little you know, you can still serve a purpose in God's kingdom by turning and giving it to someone else. There is never a a time when you've reached the point where now you can officially disciple people. You have become a Christian, you can begin telling the gospel to people. You have become a Christian, you can now teach people what it means to follow Christ as you learn to follow Christ. We have to be driven to compassion for the harassed and the helpless as Jesus was. The reason that buffet Christianity is not following Jesus is because it's literally not what he did. The second thing that I think is important for us is that following Jesus is doing as he did. So in other words, we're emulating the one that has spiritually been raising us. Our nature has been changed in salvation by the giving of the Holy Spirit. He has changed our nature to now we can actually work and please God. But then He is in the process of changing our nurture as well as He continues to teach us what it is like to behave like Christ. So I am 35 years old now. I have been following Christ for some 20 plus years, some 27 years. I hope that at 40, I I know for sure that at 35, I'm far different than I was at 20. And I hope that at 40, my pores ooze Christ more than they do now. I hope that at 50, they do even more than they did at 40. And 60, and 70, and 80, until they bury me in the grave and I am made fully like Him. That is my desire. To grow more and more and more, not into the nature of my parents, but in the nature of my spiritual parent, Christ. That's what our desire is. In following Jesus, we are literally emulating His steps. So we're rejoicing in the good news of the kingdom, and in our joy, we're going about sharing it with those who also were, as you once were, harassed and helpless. And it's teaching them how to follow the Good Shepherd so that they're no longer wandering aimlessly. And out of our compassion, it should drive us to the point of evangelism. Setting people free with the only news that can actually do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Can we not help but pray for boldness? We know that your desire for us is to share this good news of the kingdom with others. Father, push us to do that. I know there are many in this room who have family members, very close family members, who do not believe. And they feel in some ways helpless. 
pray you give them courage and boldness to stand on the truth of the gospel. You'd help them to model it by their attitude and their spirit. So that if nothing else, this person may see the works of their spouse, their daughter, their father, whatever. And may turn and glorify you. Pray for the rest of us who, whether we have family members or friends or neighbors who we know don't believe, may we use even the calendar where, our, where senses across our community are heightened toward Easter Sunday. May we even use that as a foray into the gospel message. We simply just impart to them grace and peace from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Make us the kind of people that earnestly desire to set people free who are harassed and helpless to have compassion on those that are lost and desire them to be with us for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.